You're listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, your source for all things blood flow restriction training. I'm your host, Johnny Owens. Hey there, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Owens, and today we're talking about a hot topic called orthobiologics. Um, you hear about it at all these orthopedic conferences. It's, it's kind of like everyone's talking about it, but not everyone understands it, even knows what it is. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So I brought on some of my friends who are some of the experts in the field, um, from, from the docs that are doing it to therapists rehabbing it. Um, and so we had a great conversation and I think it can maybe shed some light on, on what orthobiologics are, how they're applied for uh, recovery from injuries, and what we're looking at from the BFR perspective with it. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you uh, are interested and want to check out more, check out our uh, site, owensrecoveryscience.com. Um, if you want to get certified in blood flow restriction, we have courses um, coming up all over the place. I'm going to be in Miami uh, July 20th. Still got a few spots left there, I think, for that course um, everyone that gets done, I think we're going to the beach and drinking margaritas together. Um, so it should be good. Memphis, Tennessee, July 27th, St. Paul, Minnesota, August 3rd, Los Angeles, August 4th, San Francisco, August 10th, um, London, August 31st. So anyways, go to our site. There's a bunch of courses all over the place. Um, and once you become one of our certified providers, you're part of our cool club. We have a private group where we just discuss all things BFR, you can pose your questions, um, any concerns you have with certain patients. Um, you get our weekly email blast. You get our contact information, um, and our whole science and advisory board can help answer any questions for you. So a lot more goes into it than just taking the training. Um, we want to make sure everyone's doing this um, and feeling comfortable with it. Um, when, with that being said, let's roll on into the podcast. All right. Welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens. I'm super excited about this today um, because we're talking about a topic that gets a lot of questions. There's a lot of misinformation. A lot of people just don't even know what the heck it is in, in the rehab space. But every time I go to an orthopedic conference, this is like the hottest thing right now. I'm going to be at AOSSM here tomorrow. And, and I was just looking at the agenda. There's, there's so many orthobiologics talks there. Um, so it's something we, we need to know better. So I, I brought on some friends of mine who are some of the experts in this field right now. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Alberto Panero. Um, no relation to Panero Bread or Panera Bread. Um, he, we um, have met several months ago. He um, does a lot of work out there with a good buddy of mine, Tony Mikla at Kind Performance. Um, and so Tony just kept telling me I have to meet Alberto. Um, he's doing awesome stuff. So he's at at Sacramento Regenerative um, Orthopedics. He's also co-medical director at Sac State, and he's clinical faculty at Cal Davis. So, Alberto, thanks for being on, man. You want to um, plug anything else that you're affiliated with or kind of where your orthobiologics kind of training and background came from and what you're doing now? Sure. Well, first of all, Johnny, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my background is actually physical medicine and rehab. I did my residency at the University of Miami in Florida, uh, go Canes. And then um, I did a sports fellowship uh, at the University of California, Davis. And within those years, that's kind of when uh, PRP was just kind of starting to come out with, you know, Heinz Ward getting that uh, MCL injection before the Super Bowl. Um, and that's kind of how I started to look at it a little bit and really dove deep and uh, made it a primary focus of my training. And then, um, from when I graduated on, it's just exponentially grown. And I think 
I got in kind of at the right time where I was able to get my hands on it and really get some good clinical experience. And thankfully, we've been able to publish some good literature in the last few years that we can share today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the podcast today. Awesome. Yeah. And, and we're pseudo collaborating and some stuff going as well with looking at BFR um, and PRP out there with your lab. So I'm excited to, to see yep. those as well. The next person here, my Pakistani <laughs> brother from another father, you corrected me, um, <laughs> Dr. Umar Khan. Um, so we've met years ago, um, became fast friends. Ben wanted me to just describe you to the group. So you are from Pakistan, yeah. family. The northwest part, right after. But you got the most southern accent in the world. So well, I grew up in Georgia. Grew up in Georgia. Up in Georgia. And he's built like a freaking brick house. So what, what are you like, 6'7", 390 now? No, no, I shrunk. I'm 6'3", about 3'10". Your Facebook picture doesn't look anything like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but Umar's awesome, man. And so he's, he was down at Andrews Institute when we first met. Um, doing his fellowship training and um, was doing some really cool research with Dr. Adam Ams, um and also some stuff I like to talk about with the injection into the ACL and okay. things like that, which you guys did. Um, and so we've been collaborating a lot together. Um, he linked me up with the Andrews guys early on. Um, he's our medical director of Orange Recovery Science. We run questions by him all the time. Um, and and, and um, it's just awesome having him part of our, our group. So Umar, how did you get all into the orthobiologic side and your background? Well, uh, you know, uh, my, my buddies call me Omar, John, even though it's you. No. But, <laughs> but anyhow, so, so again, you know, like, like uh, John was saying, that you know, I did my sports medicine training uh, initially uh, down in Birmingham with Andrews. Had a bunch of great mentors with Lyle Kane and Jeff Dugas and uh, Tracy Ray and uh, Ortega down there. And uh, also Josh Hackle down in Pensacola, uh, part of Andrews. So, uh, just like you, Albert, uh, when I started in 2010, that's when we started dabbling into uh, muscle cell ultrasound and ultrasound got a orthobiologic injections. And back then in 2010, we were just doing platelet-rich plasma pretty much. Uh, so I finished my training and went to uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. I was a team physician at Western Kentucky University at Lindsay Wilson College over there. And, and it just kind of like, like you, it just, it just blew up and grew and different other techniques, you know, with, with different types of PRP, the bone aspirate, lipo aspirate, amniotic tissue. Uh, and we were just kind of building on that. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess one of my claims of fame was with the help of Jay Smith up at the Mayo Clinic and uh, Josh Hackman and Andrews was doing the ultrasound guided uh, technique for ACL injections, which I, th I think has a role in, in partially torn ACL injections. It's completely torn and it's not approximated, you know, you got to get it fixed. But for the partially torn non-functional ones, I think it has a role in uh in uh recovery because they may scar down but with what we could do with the bfr with the orthobiologics uh uh directly into the uh, remaining ligament uh i think i think we'll get a faster response you know i've got, I've got a couple of mris pre and post that are about six weeks later where it shows uh you know quote unquote healing you know we don't know what it heals with does it heal with scar tissue does it heal with actual ligament we don't know let's get a biopsy um but uh you know th th there, there is some some uh, uh Good things come down the road with this, I think. Were you the first paper to publish ultrasound guided injection of a ligament? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, for, for, for the technique. And uh, actually, Albert is one of y'all's journals in the Journal of PMNR. Uh, where we're, yeah. Yeah, so, so we, did the, uh, we did the ACL, we flipped the knee around, did the PCL as well. How did you get to it? Uh, we, we went anterior, we had the knee flex. Uh, did you, you know, use an arthroscope? No, 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 uh, ultrasound got it. Just now, ultrasound. Now, so the needle gets in with yeah, no issue. So, so you can see it. Now, the funny thing with ACL on the ultrasound, you can't see it, right? But it's there. And the reason why you can't see it is because it dives deep. Yeah. 
and, and the ultrasound waves are refracting off it, so so it, you don't see anything, but it's a black stripe that you're aiming for. That black stripe is the anechoic, uh, or the, you know, the the black structure that the ultrasound waves aren't reflecting right back to the probe. Then that's going to be your target. You know, now, now I did do an in-office arthroscopic guide. It was a miniscope guided ACL in a 13-year-old. Um, and the reason why I did that was because the MRI looked kind of like it was intact, but it, you know, the radiologist called it a complete tear. And so timing was perfect. Uh, you know, I was able to get a miniscope in my office and uh, you know, go in and visualize the ACL. And yes, the synovium was intact. And so I went ahead and uh, did a mini-arthroscopic guided ACL injection with uh, BMAC and uh, 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 PRP and handout tissue uh, in that kid as well. I, I don't know if that was the first one or not, but that was the first I heard of. Healed up? He did, but he wasn't compliant. And uh, he was 13, and uh, you know his, his ligament uh, on exam tightened up, and he got overconfident and had a non-contact injury getting a rebound uh, and uh, ended up getting you know, completely torn. <laughs> you know, so he had to get it fixed. But. All right. Cool. Tyler... Tyler Opitz down at the Andrews Institute, physical therapist like myself. Um, and so Tyler does a lot of work in rehab research with the guys down at Andrews, um, with, with Dr. Adam Manns, um, who's also a good buddy of all of ours. And um, we've been doing some kind of interesting pilot data looking at can we increase these progenitor cells or growth factors with things like blood flow restriction to augment what, what, what these guys are doing with their orthobiologics. So Tyler, man, welcome. Anything you want to add on what you guys are doing down there, your background, but you just, and also want to throw out there, I mean, we talk about it. You published a paper um, with your group of, of rehab after injection for NEOA, which is kind of one of the first that you've seen where actually rehab people have put out, like this is kind of the way we do it. Um, Cause that's this big gap. Um, I spoke at MSSM years ago and that was, I threw that out there like, you know, there's a lot of cool science here, but there's this huge gap from what you do pre-injection to what you do post-injection. Um, and so I like that you guys are looking at it from rehab side. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for having me. I, I really appreciate it and really excited to be here. Um, yeah, so my background, I'm a four-year college athlete, and then I went to PT school and um, took a job down here at Andrews afterwards. And just kind of with Dr. Ann's and some of the physicians down here, Dr. Jordan and Dr. Andrews. And working my way up and they, as they started to become more interested in orthobiologics, that's kind of where my interest started to peak as well. And then we met when we were starting to realize the effects that uh, blood flow restriction can have with it. And so I got in touch with a group out of Dubai and this year we, we did the research project last year and then published it in this year, um, in 2019, January, February. And, uh, because there is a huge deficit and a need for, um, the the rehab portion of orthobiologics that we don't really know if the rehab screwing it up or if it's the actual orthobiologics that's there's an issue with and so it's tough to say hey let's get a standardization when we're not even standardizing our rehab uh and i you know and and when we look at athletes because we do a lot with different athletes from different sports whether it be tennis soccer football we see a ton of ton of football players ton of baseball players uh it's, it's tough to say, hey, you know what, when you go back to your team, here's that rehab program that you have because we don't have a lot of data to back it up on. And with my background, with my sports certified specialty and, and some of the other stuff, it, it's really tough to say, hey, you know what, this is the direction you need to go. So that's what we're trying to do. We have a couple studies in the works. You had touched on them. We're doing one with three different exercises to see if there's an acute response to uh, increase in progenitor cells. 
And then we're also doing one where we do bilateral lower extremity blood flow restriction after shoulder surgery to see if we get improved healing. Uh, there's a little, bit, there's a few limitations with that study, but um, we're we're just seeing if there's a systemic response and seeing how that can affect some of our some of our different outcomes that we're trying to get. Uh, awesome, man. Yeah, we need you guys to keep doing that. Champion it. We'll see, we need that stuff to be pushed forward. Hey, do you think y'all could do me a favor down there? Uh, get, get in touch with Brett and Josh down there. And, uh, you know, while you guys are doing that, see if they can drop the ultrasound on there and see if you can see stuff on the ultrasound. On the shoulder? What's that? On the shoulder or, or in the knee? Both. Oh, on the shoulder, maybe. I mean, the, the knee can't really see, but, but on the shoulder. So post-op, we can get some ultrasound data so we can see as it, as it progresses, you know, see what the healing looks like on the ultrasound as well. Yeah, you know, to, to tell them Omar said to. They'll, 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 they'll. I'll, I'll definitely do that. Yeah, right, right now we're just looking at labor repairs, and okay. so we're, and we're just to see we're doing six weeks twice a week of uh, bilateral lower extremity BFR leg press leg extension, and uh, with the Delphi, and then we're we're seeing if they have any improved outcomes compared to the control group uh, from a human. We, we do have a rotator cuff study. It just went to IRB okay. um, up in the Twin Cities. So we're doing bilateral. We're doing lower extremity, and then we're looking at T3 MR yeah, you're about to see one. if yeah. yeah we we improve tendon healing. So we'll see. Okay. You know, what's interesting is that I think you bring up a good point with ultrasound because we've been looking at uh, postoperative um, SCR, and we've been following it with ultrasound to measure the thickness of the graft afterwards. Uh, seeing if there's neovascularization, if the graft, graft is being incorporated into the body. Uh, and it's so useful because two things. One, the ultrasound can be done in the office kind of real quick instead of having them be sent for an MRI. And we found, uh, compared to other groups that are also studying SCR, is that people are more likely to be compliant with coming in and getting an ultrasound than having to go and sit in the scanner for 45 minutes or so. So it's not a bad option just to look at the integrity of the and obviously you can't see the labrum it would have to be rotator cuff uh but you know the rotator cuff repair i think would be nice to follow it out and see how it's doing that'd be cool very yeah. good very low cost yeah. easy to do okay so i'm gonna let omar and alberto you start running with explaining what orthobiologics are it's a catch-all term yeah. um but let's let's talk about like kind of what are the main flavors that you see so prp first yeah so we'll let alberto go first yeah, so, so PRP is very basic. It's essentially just any time that you can, uh, you know, extract blood, uh, spin it down, and concentrate platelets above physiologic level. So, for instance, um, the, the problem becomes is that even if you do one, let's say 1.5 times physiologic rate, that's considered technically PRP. But, you know, you can increase the platelet concentrations five times, 10 times, even 15 or 20 times. How do you and do that's where a lot. Go ahead. How do you do that? Just so everyone knows. Just work. Yeah. So, so primarily it, it depends on how fast you spin the blood in a centrifuge and for how long you spin it for. So there's primarily two systems of, of PRP. One is called a plasma-based system, which you basically grab a small fraction of blood and you spin it at a low rate for about five minutes or so. And what that does is it creates a pellet, um, well, not necessarily a pellet, but a, a fraction where the red blood cells are at the very bottom you get a layer of white blood cells and the stuff on the top, it's platelets that are floating within plasma. And the benefit of that is that you don't really get any white blood cells. So it's essentially considered a leukocyte poor preparation. 
the problem is is or not necessarily a problem but you don't really concentrate the platelets too much it's maybe 1.8 to 2.5 times you know physiologic rate and then you have another system that are called buffy coat system which spins the blood much faster and for longer periods of time and that really creates a dense packet of platelets but because they're of similar density or weight uh, they're essentially going to pack in the leukocytes in there as well. So now you get what's called the leukocyte-rich preparation. Um, so depending on what you want to do, you know, for, I think for knee osteoarthritis, it's been shown that a leukocyte-poor preparation is better or favorable, while um, for tendinopathy, it seems like the literature supports doing a leukocyte-rich, which is a little bit contra- um, it, Basic science literature shows us that leukocytes can sometimes be detrimental to tissue healing, but we have literally level one clinical data that shows that leukocyte-rich preparations for tendinopathy is, is what you want to use. So that's how you can kind of play around with the PRP. And it's also how uh, PRP is not created equal. And you talked about not having standardized uh, rehab protocols, there's certainly no standardized PRP protocols. Right. So while you may be doing, you know, PRP with leukocyte poor, the other guy's using leukocyte rich, I'm using, you know, two times physiologic rate of platelets while the other guy's using 15. And that wide range is, is what's made the, the literature so difficult to interpret and say which one's correct and which one's not. But I think today, PRP wise, I think we have good level one data and basic science data to say that NEOA uh, does improve in terms of pain and function with leukocyte poor PRP. Typically, and this is not everyone, you do a series of injections one week apart for osteoarthritis. Uh, some people just do one. What's that? How many? Three for you? Three for me for osteoarthritis. Yeah, and they're done one week apart. And then, and then tendinopathy, I, I think we're just currently just doing one injection and we're going with a leukocyte rich preparation. And I agree you know, that as far as the, the, the there's a, a not a standard yet. And, uh, you know, what, what we plan on doing here uh, when we get you know, up and running again is, and I hope you're doing this too, is, you know, I'm actually going to calculate and measure how much platelets, you know, what, what, what our PRP is, you know, before we inject it. And when we publish things, you know, that, that's when the standard for growing out. We have to have an actual count of what, what we're putting in, you know, or else, you know, the research is going to be all over the place and, you know, the patients, they, they get to know what, what they're getting. I get to know what they're getting. And once we, you know, uh, how would you measure line. that though? So, uh, there, there, there's a kid that I'm going to be looking at. It's actually in office and it's just a little finger prick, you know, before, uh, we, 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 we do the, you know, we get a CBC on that, a complete blood count. And then, uh, we, we, you know, draw the blood, spin it down, uh, whether I want to do a leuco poor or leuco, uh, rich PRP depends on, you know, like I was saying, depending on where we're going with it. Uh, then, and then, you know, take a drop of that and then put in that uh, uh, unit and then uh, it will give us an answer of how many platelets there are and uh, it'll, just, it'll, it'll let us know how many you know what, what value you know is it one and a half times or three times whatever their uh, uh, concentration is and then we'll know exactly what we're putting in uh, and I think that needs to be the standard for anybody especially in the academic center that's planning on publishing things is we need to know what amount of platelets we're putting into uh, 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 you know uh, in, in our injuries and you know uh, with with the uh, you know difference you know uh, how you talk you, you touch about how you know it's kind of counterintuitive in theory about leukocytes you know being bad information with, with PRP and with any type of information I think you got good information you got bad information and uh, you know too much of bad information is more you know causes degenerative stuff and you know with good information uh, that, that's where you get the healing you have to have information to get healing 
Um, and, and, you know, we're still that side for trying to figure out, you know, how does it do it? I don't know. You know, I, you know, I don't know what goes on in there to cause what, what the good healing versus the bad healing. But, uh, I, I think, you know, when, when we talk about the soft tissue, we go with the Luca rich PRP. I, I think the macrophages are key in, in, in helping out with the, with the, uh, you know, healing process. When I say healing, that's also a broad term. Is it healing with scar tissue? Is it healing with regular tissue? I, I still, I still think it's, it's scar. But a good kind of scar, so stronger scar tissue than what we normally make is, you know. I, don't I think it's a better scar, right? <laughs> it's it's a better scar than what the body would make otherwise, exactly. or has already made, which is causing you to still have pain. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So let's step back. Why would you want to even have platelets? What's what's important about that from a healing perspective? You know, for people that have never even heard of PRP or heard of but don't know so, why. why so platelets contain uh, what's called alpha granules, okay? And those alpha granules are full of growth factors and different cytokines. So to kind of break it down in, in basics, we, we kind of follow the mechanisms of wound healing. So let's say you cut your finger, platelets migrate to the area, they form a, a fibrin clot, right? Which provides hemostasis or you stop bleeding. At that point, the platelets essentially go through this process of de, uh, degranulation and that's where they release a ton of growth factor cytokines which essentially uh, kickstart or jumpstart your own body's immune system to track to the area. So it's almost like a homing beacon as the blood is circulating through, it's basically attracting mesenchymal stem cells and other factors that are going to help that wound heal. So in essence, all we're trying to do with PRP is grab your body's innate or, or one body's capacity to heal, concentrating a little bit and injecting it into a part that hasn't healed. Or for instance, in a tendon that doesn't have a good blood supply, you're delivering that that immune system directly to the area or setting off a homing beacon there. Right. And, right. and I think, I think the, you know, again, this, this all, you know, we're still in the scientific phase and, you know, research phase. I, I think the important cell that we're trying to recruit uh, whenever we do any of these orthobiologics is, is the periocytes. So these are cells that are along the blood vessel wall that, um, I think, you know, Alvaro, you, you, might, you might have a different perspective. I don't know. But I think they're the ones that are important in causing the healing aspect is, is these periocytes. And these periocytes, I think, are important as far. I think those are the important uh, as a common cells that are responsible for the good healing. Uh, in my right. Uh, again, you know, five years down the road, you know, you know some, some might come up and prove me wrong. So I, you know, that, that, that's a idiotic statement. But at least right now, you know, that, that's, that's how I feel is. You know, how we get the periocytes, you know, in that area to cause the healing. Uh, but again, you know, the, the, the PRP, the bone marrow, all that are just holding signals mm-hmm. to get all that stuff into that area. But also I think the PRP, you know, just like you said, uh, Albert, it, it causes a clot there. You know, it causes uh, a, a little, you know, uh, a little filling of, of some of the defects. Right. You know, uh, you know, just like wood for, for whenever you have a scab on an open wound, you know. So then two kind of important points. One is that we want inflammation, right? So a- after PRP, you you want the inflammatory cascade to happen. Yes. You guys are like, no Advil, no, no well, anti-inflammatories. That, right, so you know, we've heard that like, don't, don't take them at all. Yeah. And they aspirin, want to be aspirin, definitely yeah. no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, aspirin, no. No, no Hibamat post, post the PRP as well because you're, you're – you're, you're flushing all the inflammatory markers out, you know, uh, whenever you do hypermat post. So let inflammation do its thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is kind of what we're all saying now with all of healing. What do you think, Alberto? Well, I, I think it, it also depends on on the on what are you trying to accomplish, right? 
Um, for instance, let's say you have an acute MCL tear, right? Middle of the season, soccer player, football player comes in with an MCL tear. You know, I'm not sure that you want to put a super uh, leukocyte rich preparation of PRP into that MCL tear because it literally just happened, let's say, a day ago, two days ago. So it's already really inflamed. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where you go with a leukocyte poor preparation. And I, and I, and I, would, I would say, yes, you want inflammation. But you're more so trying to modulate the environment or modulate the inflammatory markers in that injury to promote healthier healing. Uh, for instance, I think if you inject a ton of platelets with a ton of leukocytes, like a big leukocyte rich, maybe you're going to overdo it. And now you're going to go into maybe fibrosis or create calcifications or things of that nature that may be actually detrimental to wound healing. So. In the acute, you have to be careful in the acute phase of an injury or like a, a muscle, a, a hamstring tear, right? And that in that instance, you probably want to see, okay, is there a hematoma? The answer is yes, right? So maybe now it makes sense to aspirate the hematoma. I would probably still go with a leukocyte poor preparation because again, the injury just happened. There's already inflammation there and you don't want to kick it into overdrive where now you create fibrosis, maybe calcifications. And I think uh, maybe some, it's, it's really more basic science, but Jason Dragu over at Stanford showed that actually for muscle injury, you want to use a, a low uh, platelet type of preparation, even what's called a platelet poor preparation. So I think there's something to it in terms of uh, really understanding what you want to accomplish with your biologic, what stage is the injury in, and then deciding what preparation to use. So I, yes, in a lot of, ter- in a lot of terms, you want to uh, create inflammation, but I think the better term to use is modulate inflammation in your favor to your whatever goal you want to accomplish. I agree. Too much inflammation is bad. So, you know, for, uh, at least when I, again, unfortunately, it's anecdotal. I don't have a research center, but what I do with my injuries, it's an acute injury. I actually wait a couple of days uh, before we do any type of injections. I try and get rid of the inflammation first. I actually like to hide them out of that situation first to help the mm-hmm. body get the inflammation out of the way that's already there. And then, and then go in. And, and I actually like using collagen in addition to PRP in some of these injuries as well. You know, whether it's amniotic mm-hmm. tissue. I, and the FDA, they, you can't mix it in the same syringe and inject at the same time. You know, that's more of a minimal manipulation. But you can have two separate injections where you do the PRP plus the collagen uh, in the same area. And, uh, yeah, the collagen is actually a better fiber and bridge, just a bridge. Yeah, and then the PRP has the honing signals to do to do what it's supposed to do to kind of help. Accentuate the healing, but but I agree, Albert. You know, with with uh, you know with an acute injury, you know, you, you don't want to drop it in immediately because there's you know you already have inflammation there, um, and then you you know, cause more inflammatory response, and you know you can cause more damage. I think so. I, I like to wait, you know, a couple of days, get rid of the inflammation, hop them out of, um, and then and then you know go in and uh, do the injection. So let's go case here. I'm an NBA guy. I I pulled a hammy. Come see you. It's day after the game you say what come back two to three days and then we're going to look at doing a leukocyte pour well what would you do i, I pulled a hammy and i go see the biologics guy so so what i'll do is uh you know first, first of all see if there's like see if there's a big hematoma there if there's a big hematoma you got to you know, ideally try and get rid of it you know uh if it's a small one there i'm okay with it um but i you know you they, use that from visual then I ultrasound. You ultrasound. Yeah, I ultrasound yeah. everything. You ultrasound do that too, everything. Alberto. You do ultrasound. Yes. 
Yeah. Ultrasound is key. And that's standard. You, you have, if you're doing it with biologic, you have to do an ultrasound. Unless you're doing an in reticular the knee, yeah. or you don't have to do an ultrasound to evaluate that. But you would diagnostically ultrasound to look for the hematoma. Yes, okay. and, and, and for the and see if the lesion big. It's not not every hamstring injury needs a PRP. If it's a mild grade one, yeah, you, know, yeah. you can just rehab it and you know you'd be okay. Yeah, we're talking grade two though. Yeah, yes, yeah, so, you know, something like that. I would I, I would ultrasound it. I would, um, but not at the time of the injury. At the time of the injury, you know, you. you the, the changes won't be the whole sound if it's you know it's a couple hours after the injury. Sure. Clinical history, physical exam, yeah, you, you have a hamstring injury, let's go ahead and rehab it, let's calm down inflammation, you know, uh, however way you want to get rid of it. You know, again, I'm, I'm a fan of the hot I like to hydrate them, you know, give them a liter of fluid, PO, and you know, about an hour before, and then you know, that, that kind of helps, you know, pump everything out even more efficiently. Again, it's anecdotal, you know, I don't have any doubt on that yet. Um, have them at them for a couple of days or you know, and then once everything kind of calms down, drop the ultrasound, see what the Legion looks like, then decide if we're, if we're going to inject it. And then I, I inject it. I still like the, I'm a fan of doing that combo PRP with collagen. And, you know, depending on the injury I've had, you know, when, when I was doing some of my track guys and uh, some of the football athletes in the season, I still got them on a, uh, on an ARB. Uh, uh, and, What's that? Uh, Angiotensin receptor binder uh, inhibitor. How come? Uh, it helps, in my opinion, helps prevent scar tissue, the bad scar tissue. You know, and I, I got that data from, from uh, you know cardiac MIs, uh, heart attacks, micron infarctions, where you know when the heart tissue scars, it scars with uh, not so good tissue. But what we do to prevent that from happening is you know right after they have the MI, we put them on an ACE inhibitor and ARB you know, type medication, um, and that kind of translates over to skeletal muscles. Well, there's a study that was done in China that did on they did on gastroc muscles. They clipped the gastroc on three different groups. They had saline, they had low dose uh, low sartan and high dose low sartan, and uh, show that. Uh, high dose lutein showed more healing, less scar tissue yeah. uh, compared to control. And that's um, a lot of Johnny Heward's work out of yeah. Stedman that's that's showing that. But, I know at Stedman they're using that a lot. Yeah, but you got to be careful. I mean, you got you to get baseline, you know, kidney functions, potassium levels, yeah. and you but know, it's super low risk. Yeah, and, and healthy people, and healthy yeah. people it is. You know, and older people. I so, do do you have a? Uh, and and I'm asking, is uh, I'm curious. Do you have to follow their blood pressures out or? Yes. Make sure that I, what kind of dose are you using? Like a very low dose, no, and I start, then how long do you use it for? Good, good question. So I start off at 25 milligrams, and then uh, you know over a period of three days, try and get them up to 100 milligrams just if their blood pressure can tolerate it. Uh, then about a week later, I recheck their labs. You know, I check their kidney function. You know, make sure the creatinine isn't bumped, and make sure the potassium isn't going up. Then I keep them on it for about two months. You know, because yeah, that two months. Um, again, this is anecdotal. I don't have any data on this yet. You know? Johnny does already, though. He does? Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So, so I do it for three months because, again, I'm taking what I know from the heart. Because you know, my background is also internal medicine. So um, I, I, I do what we do in, in, in cardiac muscle where we get them on it for, for at least – if somebody has a cardiomyopathy or weakened heart uh, from a MI, we put them on it for, for three months and then get a repeat echo, ultrasound the heart to see if their uh, function improves. So I kind of use that guideline – and transition over to skeletal muscle. And, uh, you know, about a two to three month mark, I, I pull back and, and go from there. Not acute injuries, something like that. I like to do a round of three as well, uh, seven to 10 days apart. Um, and also a fan of dry needling, um, you know, post injection as well. I think that helps bring blood flow into that area too. And, uh, the timing of BFR, I think is important too. I've, I've been doing BFR since, uh, 2015. Um, and, uh, you know, the science behind the BFR, as far as, you know, when you do it that night, how you know, your growth hormones increase, your IGF values uh, uh, increase. I like to do my BFR the day before the procedure and then about an hour um, an hour before the blood draw as well. 
Um, and, uh, and then, you know, and then go ahead and inject, uh, yes, be a far an hour before the blood draw and then spin it down and inject it where I need to go. Um, so Ty Tyler, were you guys doing it for the pilot study an hour before? Do you remember the timing? We were doing it, uh, immediate. So our pilot study, we took the data at time zero. So as soon as I got done with the exercise, we did the blood draw right after. Uh, and then I know for Dr. Ann's and some of the physicians, if they're doing PRP or B, uh, even a BMAC, um, we'll try and do BFR ahead of time. But for PRPs, we'll do the BFR and then walk them straight upstairs. So it's within the 10 minutes that they're having their PRP blood drawn. Yeah, I mean, the, the blood draw, as far as that, I'm, I'm at the injection. I might say blood draw. I like the, yeah, I like the injection about an hour just because if you inject it too soon with that, you know, that rush of blood going back to that limb, are you going to wash it all out? You know, so I like to give an hour to let the blood uh, hemostasis get back to normal. But all, all the all the factors, uh, you know, uh, the nitrous oxide and all that other stuff that can help deliver uh, the nutrients are still circulating that area. So, again, it's anecdotal, but just the science on paper from what I know about BFR, you know, it makes sense to me. You know, uh, it's not going to hurt nobody, I don't think, you know. Well, I, I think we're going to see a lot coming out with these TGF-beta, angiotensin-type things and fibrosis, especially with, with what the guys out at Stedman are are really champion it. So that combo is yeah. going to be interesting to see. But Albert, that's between me and you now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, just no it, it, it's interesting because listen, we're, we're, you know, the reality is, is when you look at PRP data for, let's say hamstring injuries, it hasn't really been overwhelming. As a matter of fact, um, the return to play uh, times have been pretty equal uh, if you do PRP or not. Uh, it does seem like when you look at it on ultrasound, some study shows that the scar tissue or the scar that forms is healthier with the PRP group. But, um, you know, if we can do things like use, you know, BFR, uh, you know, use ARBs and things of that nature and throw the combo, maybe that was the missing link to now get those return to play timeframes uh, sooner and better yet, even form better tissue where you reduce the chance of re-injury. Yeah, uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting great results on that. You know, I have a case where it was a, I think it was grade three. It was about a millimeter and a half uh, uh, retraction on a distal bicep femoris tear. Uh, we got him back running at about – we got him practice about four weeks, limited game time in five weeks. Game six, he ran for like 197 yards. Uh, wow. No re-entry either. Um, yeah. But um, and you know, going back to the study where you're talking about the PRP and hamstrings, the problem with that is, number one – People have different techniques of doing it. People have different sure. techniques that they're doing it. We don't know how much of the PRP was objected. And then I think most of those studies were, were, were single round versus what we do. Like I think we are on the same page. We'll do three rounds, seven to, seven to ten days apart. Um, sure. And that, I don't think that's been looked at. You know, so, so if we could you know, get, some, get some of that data together uh, you know, with, with that type of protocol just to you know, settle the issue, I think you know, I, I'm getting good results uh, with that. Um, you know, so um, I agree. A anecdotally, we, you know, we use PRP, leukocyte poor PRP, and it's a, it's a plasma-based system, so it's a lower platelet count. We do uh, intramuscular injections for acute tears all the time. At, um, you know, we have a program of 460 athletes, so we get several of them every year. And anecdotally, they do great. So that's why when I read these studies, it, it doesn't make sense to me on on why they're not getting those results. And, and you're right. I saw one study that um, they would basically look at the MRI and say, okay, here's the tear. 
and then try to find it palpation guided and stick a needle into the tear. You know what I mean? You're never going to get a three CC concentrate of PRP into that area exactly. or um, other people were using leukocyte rich preparation. So I agree that uh, going back to uh, Tyler's first point, we need more standardization and, and be able to say, Hey, if you have an acute hamstring injury, use this exact type of or preparation of PRP plus combine it with BFR the, do it at, at this time point, you know, think about getting an ARB and maybe come up with a better protocol that we can standardize. And another, another tip that I do when I scan is uh, also scan distal to the acute injury. And what I've seen in a, in a few subjects was that, you know, because I, I scan down and I look at the, at the mid-substance, uh, uh, to, to just say, you know, or the hamstring muscle, I see a little defect there. Not mash on it, you know, the ultrasound say, does, does that bother you? And they say, no, but... You know, three weeks before I got this injury, I, I did tweak it a little bit down there. And so I yeah. that, that could be the initial side of the injury, which causes a change of biomechanics, which makes it put too much stress up top of the proximal part of the hamstring and causes the injury up there. Um, and that's why with physical therapists, we, we need to get you all to do ultrasound. You know, if you come to the Andrews course and that next year, you know, we'll, we'll teach you all something, you know. Um, we do it already. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, but um, but that, that also helps uh, as well. Um so, okay, so tendon, leukocyte poor or leukocyte rich? Let me just wrap this all up on a bow here. Leukocyte poor or leukocyte rich for a tendon? Me, I do leukocyte rich. I, I, the only time I do leukocyte poor is if I'm going interarticular. Just in the joint? Yeah, you know, uh, I think Albert has a little different philosophy. Like, you know, first um, you know I, I think that there, I would go, I would say that tendinopathy is somewhat of a spectrum. I think if I see uh, acute tenosynovitis, which is kind of like uh, a ha- you see the halo sign around the tendon, but I don't see structural damage, I'm probably going to go look poor on that one and uh, almost use it like a, a cortisone shot, like an anti-inflammatory shot, but use leukocyte poor. I think for more chronic tendinopathy uh, to a partial tear, I'm going to go look rich. And that's primarily because there's two level one studies uh, for common extensor tendon. Uh, and there's one level one study in the glute tendon that just came out of Australia with two-year uh, data that shows significant improvements with leukocyte rich. So even though the basic science data tells me that, hey, some of these leukocytes may not be good, I'd rather follow the clinical data and say, hey, this is what's working. Yeah. And I think we're going to get to a point where where with the leukocytes, and I think uh, you were alluding to this earlier, there's not just one leukocyte, right? There's multiple. And I think all of them are going to perform different roles in different environments. And I think where we're going to go in the future is where we can say, okay, the monocytes are probably good, right? And they're probably going to stimulate healing. So how do, instead of getting leukocyte-rich PRP, we can get monocyte-rich PRP or neutrophil uh, depleted, right? PRP. So I think that's where it's going to go next. Right. But, and I'm sorry to, to, to elaborate on it, but to answer your question, tendon leukocyte rich. A quick question. So for, for, for the really bad tendinosis, you know, tendinotic tensions, have you done, uh, uh, the, uh, what's it called? The 10 X procedure. I have. Yeah. You know, personally, I'm, I'm so explain what 10x is for so, people who don't know. So 10x, it's it's a it's a procedure where it's ultrasound based, where the ultrasound waves actually, you know, destroy the degenerative tissue and it gets aspirated out without injuring any of the healthy tissue. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and that degenerative tissue has a lot of neovascularization, uh, which also brings uh, some immature nerve uh, fibers, which causes uh, a lot of pain. Um, and then, you know, after we do the you know, TEDx procedure, then, then they uh, do some PRP or some type of biologic afterwards. Personally, I, you know, I, I'm not seeing a difference with, you know, it's a little bit more dangerous, maybe. I don't know. I haven't had a bad outcome yet because I'm actually protecting. But, I, you know, with, with an 18-gauge needle, I'll do a fenestration of that area, break up the, the tissue. And then uh, with a pre, uh, you know, with a fat pad, uh, you know, deep to the patellar tendon, I do a little, little tendon scraping off that because I think there's some scar tissue in that area as well. That's also a pain generator. So uh, we can kind of break up the scar tissue uh, and, and uh, separate the fat from the tendon, deepen the joint as well as, you know, fenestrate the tendon, and then, you know, inject it uh, with the PRP. And the way I explain it to patients, like, you're aerating the lawn before you, you, you fertilize it, you know, before you hydrate it, because if you just do a PRP on top of the tendon, the tissue just kind of sits on top. It's not getting to where, no, that where it needs to get into, you know. So, um, but, but as far as your outcomes with, with the 10X versus doing other stuff, have you noticed any difference with, with 10X versus doing standard penetration or, or, or the outcome's about the same or any better? You know, I, I think that um, where I've seen the best utility for 10X is for mid-substance Achilles uh, tendinopathy, you know, where you kind of on ultrasound, you'll see the big kind of whale tendon in the middle. Um, those, for whatever reason, for me, have not responded well just to PRP alone. And contrary to some other people, I've had better results with insertional tendinopathy. So for mid-substance, I've been doing the 10X, uh, and that seems to work really well. Uh, I actually will combine, uh, I'll typically do PRP uh, at time point zero when I'm done with the 10X. Right, right. Or I think uh, that's been a good role for amniotic tissue, uh, where I will go ahead and inject it into the tendon afterwards. Uh, I think your point of, um, of doing the fat pad uh, hydrodissection I think that's key in patellar tendinopathy uh, to treat, or even in Achilles tendinopathy, to, to treat the neovascularization, I think is very important. Um, I would tell you that for, for some of the stuff we really looked at in detail, I did not see a significant difference when I did bone marrow, and I know we're going to get to bone marrow, but bone marrow alone versus 10x and bone marrow, they seem to do about the same uh, and with 10x, it seems like they take a little bit longer to heal because I think you actually do cause a little more uh, uh, tissue damage. Um, and it is what it is. But some people can't afford PRP. And I think 10x is a good option for those people. Uh, and I think in combination with the biologics, it does really well. Do you guys use 10x, Tyler, out there at Andrews? We do. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kendall and Dr. Ackle are using 10x. Cool. Okay. So. And just to follow up then, tendon, intraarticular primarily you're doing for a NEOA. You're doing it for anything else intraarticular? I mean, you're doing it on your partial tears, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. about you, Alberto? Are you doing it on partial tears, like a yeah. or something? Yeah, I try to keep it to like 50% uh, of the tendon or smaller. You know, anything bigger, I, I'm not entirely sure. You know, obviously full thickness tears, I'm very transparent with the patient that this may give you a little pain relief, but it's not really going to do much for your tear, right? Uh, I think those are, are more definitive management is surgically. And once you start getting over the 50% mark of the tendon, it's also a little bit questionable. And I think that um, that's where I think bone marrow may come in for especially patellar tendon, Achilles tendon, contained tendons that have large defects. I think PRP may not be enough. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where bone marrow comes in and, and that's where you want to try and do that. Yeah. We're hit on that in a minute. So then yep. the intraarticular and muscle, anywhere else you guys are injecting PRP. I think there's not really much left. I don't do a ton of ligament work, uh, to be honest with you, but I guess that would be another, you know, some, some other folks may do like ATFL on the ankle. Uh, actually that's not true. I do the UCL, yeah. Uh, the ulnar collateral ligament quite a bit, or the UCL, the thumb, I hit those with PRP quite often. Uh, I'm okay. getting these results. But again, the smaller partial tears. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the UCL, even if it's a near complete, if it's proximal, um, I, I, I think there's a role. You know, there's, there, we still got to put some data out on that. If it's a distal tear, yeah, you know, uh, if, it, if it's, uh, but if it's a partially torn proximal tear, I, I think it's great to, to do. I think, I think we'll get pretty good results. Um, how about you, Albert? What are you guys seeing? Um, you know, for me, it's been, it's been, it's been, t if I see a ton of laxity and I see a full tear, I will typically send them over to the elbow surgeon. And if they have a reason why not to operate, uh, then I will go ahead. Then I, then I'll do it. And then again, I kind of stick to the 50% type mark. If I see that there's still some fibers intact, uh, you know, I follow uh, Luga Podesta's uh, protocol, who published uh, the UCL data, and I've been getting really good results with it. So rehab we, after PRP. Sorry, John, go ahead, man. I was going to say we, we, we do double UCL a, a lot, quite a bit uh, with, with PRP as well. Um, but go ahead. You guys do a lot of UCL. It broke up for a minute. but Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, so the physicians are starting to do that, especially in younger athletes who um, – you know, early teenagers, 12, 13 year olds who are, who are really young, who you don't necessarily want to operate on right away. We'll get them in um, and they'll have, they'll have a PRP in, in the UCL. It's, it's crazy how young some of these kids are that are having UCL injuries. Yeah. So then rehab after PRP, you guys have a concern with early rehab. Well, what do you mean by early rehab? You know, how quickly would you start? Um, I would start, you know, a couple of days afterwards, you know, just, just range of motion stuff, uh, you know, uh, BFR definitely two, two to three times a week for the BFR. Um, and then, uh, you know, throwing, uh, it's the same stack. I don't let them throw until about six weeks. I'm on a throwing program. Uh, I like to reevaluate on the ultrasound to see if there's any, uh, improvement as well, you know. Um, and, and then, you know, I've had a couple of people where I start off doing the PRP and the occupation combination. You know, I didn't see much uh, change as far as how much you gap on ultrasound. Again, you know, with time and taking care of it as well, I don't know, but uh, on, a, on that third round, I went ahead and dropped the BMAC with the PRP and the antioxidants on one of the D1 baseball pitchers. Um, and, uh, you know, about a week and a half later, reevaluated them, and the, the gapping was not as much. And he actually, you know, pitched the next season, I think, led the team in strikeouts. Do you guys ever immobilize after a PRP? Uh, if it, for the elbow, for the UCL? Anywhere. Uh, yes, yes. You know, I, I think Albert and I agree on the same thing. If, if we're doing an intertendinous injection on on a patient, then yeah, you, you got to immobilize that. Especially if it's a low, like a glute, uh, patellar tendon, Achilles tendon. Yeah, I, I immobilize that for a period of time. How do you immobilize the glute? The glute. Uh, you don't immobilize, but limited weight bearing. Limited weight bearing. Limited right. weight bearing. What are you, Alberto? You immobilize tendon in, on tendon or I, I yeah, just, all over the board, man. I saw a guy immobilized for four weeks. Um, yeah. after a hamstring, you know, well, no, I mean, I, it, it depends, you know, but like I'm, I'm, I got with the distal biceps femoris tear. I, I didn't mobilize him. You know, I just yeah. let him go. 
But uh, I had a volleyball player that had a pretty bad, de- you know, mucoid degeneration of her uh, patellar tendon. Uh, fenestrated it, injected it, and uh, I had her uh, in an immobilizer for about uh, about seven days, and, you know, and then weight bearing with crutches for another week. And then, uh, you know, but I was still doing rehab, you know, with, with range of motion, obviously. But as far as you know, no, no plyometrics for about four to six weeks. Yeah. What about you, Alberto? Yeah, I'm pretty conservative with, especially with the lower extremities because of the weight bearing component of it. Um, I uh, immobilize patellar tendon, Achilles tendon, even plantar fascia. Um, on the upper extremity, I'm a little bit more liberal. If I do common extensor tendon, I'll go ahead and just get them in a wrist brace for a week or two. Uh, and then the UCL or the cuff, I typically will put them in a cuff just for comfort. And I, I'm torn with it because the my first thought is, okay, if you have a, let's say, tendinopathy or a partial tear, you inject the PRP or the bone marrow and you want it to clot, right? You want it to form that clot. So part of me says, well, I don't really want to get them moving right away because then it'll that, that clot's still weak and it's going to tear everything I've done, right? Uh, and the same token, um, you know, there is no weight bearing. How long does that clot really form, you know, for... Uh, are those downstream processes or those signaling markers that were released already happened and we don't need to worry about it? You know, there are questions that I don't think we really have answers to, uh, but I tend to be more conservative because I, I, I really want to protect uh, the tissue. So anything that I do intraligamentous or intratendinous, I'm probably going to put non-weight bearing for a week and in some sort of immobilization for two to three weeks. And uh, it'll cut, it'll, typically be a gradual thing. Uh, and I really let uh, the patient know that pain has to be their guide. So for instance, uh, Achilles tendon. Okay. The rule is for me, no weight bearing for a week. The second week, if you're, you're in the boot and you're putting weight on it and it still hurts you to do that, then just get off of it and be on the crutches as opposed to, Hey, I'm walking in the boot. I'm not really feeling pain. Then I let them go. Right. Patellar tendon, on the other hand, same thing. I lock them out at zero, one week non-weight bearing. Second week, weight bearing is tolerated. I open up the brace, the hinge brace, to about 30 degrees. Uh, the third week, I open it up to 60, and their weight bearing is tolerated, and then the brace is gone. Um, glute is, again, it's hard to immobilize, but I try to just keep them in a neutral position, non-weight bearing for a week, and then weight bearing is tolerated. So it kind of varies, and, and I would probably say I'm on the more conservative side. Uh, but again, for me, if you're getting this treatment, it's, it's a relatively painful procedure. We're going to shut you down. You're typically paying cash for it. I really want uh, to, to get it to work. And I think less is more, especially in the acute phases of, of orthobiologics. And, and Tyler, I would love to hear your, your, your opinion on my, on my tactics. Tyler, I'd like to. So you're rehabbing all these orthobiologics at Andrews. Can you take us through? Let's say, what do you want to discuss? Maybe a neo A injection, or you go at it. Gonna, let's start with the elbow, just because that's a little bit from more from a baseball standpoint. We see them the day that they get the injection because it's super important to give these people education of what to expect, how to manage their expectations. Because if I tell you that you're going to get re- get better in six weeks and it takes eight, you're going to be mad. But if I tell you you're going to get better in six and it takes four, you're going to be happy. So we have to manage your expectations, and then. Anytime you're putting fluid into a joint, your body's not recognizing that this is PRP or it's fluid from some type of trauma you've had. It just knows that the joint capsule is swollen. So you're going to get inhibition. That, and we naturally see that with the knee. We know that as little as 10 millimeter or 10 uh, MMHG 
it will cause inhibition. So what we want to do is we're going to just wake them up either doing like opposition of the fingers, giving them a little bit of pain relief because that joint's so full, it doesn't feel good. So we'll do finger stretches, things like that. And we'll also won't limit any shoulder stretching if it's a UCL. Uh, we'll kind of minimize motion for the first couple days afterwards. And then we'll tell, and then we'll tell them passive only for um, the remainder of that first week. And we'll say, okay, we don't want you to do a ton. Your range of motion is going to be limited. And we usually don't let them go to full extension, but they're not in a sling either. So we let them go to their tolerance initially, tell them not to move it a bunch because there's a pumping mechanism with the joint that will kind of pump out any excess fluid. We, we use that with the lower extremity. If you bend the knee multiple times, you can actually decrease the swelling because there's an, uh, a sponge effect. So we don't want them pumping that out. We also won't use like Normatec or Game Readies with compression. We'll just do it from a cold standpoint if they have a little bit of pain, but we won't crank it up uh, in that regard. And then we'll start isometrics in that next week because there's three components to orthobiologics. You have to have the cells, the one things that we're getting injected. You have to have the scaffold for the cells to adhere to. And then you have to signal it because these things are going to respond just like you would muscles. If you want to get big muscles, you have to work out, right? So it's Wolf's law, law of imposed demands. So if you don't stress anything, they don't heal. And we know that rotator cuff tears, if we don't actually put any tension through that tendon, if we look microscopically how those fibers are orienting, it's more of like a rat's nest. Whereas if we look at someone who's had a little bit of loading through the tissue, it's more in lines with the fibers of a rope. And we know a rope is much stronger than something that's a little bit more scattered and, and unorganized. So we want to make sure that at some point we get the signal that and this this goes along with the stem cells. You have to signal what you want these compounds to do because they don't know where they're at. And so you have to tell them, hey, you're in a joint. And then you have to tell them, hey, this is what I need you to become, either ligament, tendon, cartilage, et cetera. And if you don't do that, then you've just shot them full of saline, essentially, and it just has gone on its merry way and you haven't done anything with it. And so from a rehab standpoint, that's the two things that we want to focus on is how can we get – the, the cells to signal that you're in a joint. I don't want you to become fibrotic and I don't want you to actually form like a pseudo arthrosis or anything like that. Even though you're in a joint, we don't have to worry about that because we know like if there, if people have fractures in their uh, forearm and then you inject it with stem cells or they've done it, they've done this in a uh, uh, rodents, they've mobilized or they've uh, mobilized portions of long bones where they've created a fracture and injected it with stem cells and they've shown that you can create a pseudoarthrosis. So we don't want either the converse of the joint becoming too stiff or um, the, the other direction is we don't want it to, to not know what, what it wants to do. So we're like, Hey, you're in a joint. We want you to move, know that you have to be a dynamic structure. And then how do we signal you, whether it be ligament, tendon or, or cartilage. So cartilage is going to be best tolerated with static load it hates shear forces so do not load cartilaginous structures if we look at the leg don't do shear forces and loading with it so we don't want you to do deep squatting past 90 if you have a patellar femoral joint issue because that shear force is just going to rub away any cartilage and you're going to negate the effects of your prp if it's a tendon they love eccentric loading so now let's say hey if we have a tendinous injury let's do a little bit more eccentric similar to what we would traditionally do but we have to have that load on, on the tissue at some point. And then this is the tricky part is ligament. What are you going to do with the UCL? Are you going to do a valgus test on a bunch or a milking maneuver? No. I mean, so that's, that's kind of where we're struggling with ligaments is saying, how do you get that load to signal to the biologic what it needs to help facilitate in healing? Uh, so then we, we start throwing at six to 10 weeks, just depending on their age. Uh, there is a byproduct of 
when you give somebody an injection, it shuts them down. And so you get that rest that you need, whether, I mean, regardless of what people say, therefore you're, it's a forced rest break. And so we don't have such good outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't hurt when I throw. When's the last time you threw? Four weeks ago? Oh, okay. Well, so, I mean, there, there's that forced rest component and, and you're taking away the painful stimulus, which a lot of times these are overuse injuries anyways. So you remove the painful stimulus, of course it feels better. Um, and that's, that's the tricky part of this too. So we wait uh, six to 10 weeks and then depending on where they're at in the season and what time of year it is, if it's a thrower, we'll do anywhere between a seven, 14, 21 and a six week uh, interval throwing program. So uh, seven day, 14 day, 21 day, and then six week interval throwing program. If we look at the lower extremity, like with Neoa, that first visit is an education visit. We, again, we're, not, we're like, hey, you got to minimize your walking. Um, if, so they'll do Neoa, Lucas Ipore, and we're going to say, hey, you know what? If you need crutches, you can use them. But a lot of times people just go home and, and they're laid up for a couple of days. We're like, hey, we want you to do calf stretches from a pain management standpoint. We want you to do some quad sets just so you don't lose that ability to control your quad. And then most importantly, we want to make sure that they can keep their knee extended because they'll prop something up behind it and they'll lose extension. And now you've changed the way they walked. And so it doesn't matter what orthobiologic you use. If you can't get the knee straight, you can't walk. And then if you can't walk, you're going to have a tough time running. So we want to make sure they maintain that motion in extension. Uh, and then we'll, we'll initiate flexion by the end of the week. Uh, with some of the ankles, it's the exact same process. We're going to do light isometrics just to make sure that there's no inhibition of the muscles. We're going to do toes just to make sure that they maintain the mobility. Oftentimes it's more of a pain reliever or analgesic just to get some distal mobility. Because think about it. If you sit in a car for three hours, first thing you do when you get out is you get up and you stretch, right? Well, how is every other joint that's either distal or proximal to the segment that was injected going to feel if you immobilized everything after four hours, you're going to be like, this does not feel good. And we know that you're going to have some level of atrophy within the first seven to eight hours of immobilization. So we don't want to have that effect of losing some of the strength because then it's going to be tougher to get back later. So initially it's let it rest, mobilize distal and proximal to it with gentle active motion activities, the joint itself that was involved is in, or the tendon itself that's involved is only going to be isometric at most, but generally that won't start until day two or three. And then in that next week, we'll do passive range of motion followed by active assist in weeks two to three. And you can start to integrate some active depending on what part of the body it's in mm-hmm. and then progress back to whatever sport they're doing. So a slow progressive signal is the key. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's distal segments. So if I, if I have UCL and I, and I start to do opposition and start to uh, just grip, I'm going to get some activation of the muscles that cross the elbow because some of those muscles are two, three, four joint muscles. And then it's, it's, there's an analgesic component, but I'm not stressing the joint itself and flushing any fluid out because it's, it's such a small, minimal contraction. And most of those muscles with opposition aren't going as far up as uh, the elbow joint. And now if I start gripping really hard, yeah, I'm going to have to start recruiting more. Uh, and we get an irradiation effect and you start to get more muscle contractures proximally. But if you start some of that stuff, you're going to have a lot of pain relief and you're going to have a much happier patient so that when you get to day three and four for your actual PT visit, because the first one's really more educational and you say, okay, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to work on passive range of motion to this range. We do limit supination and pronation, um, with, uh, with the UCLs, but 
once they can maintain that motion, then it makes the process so much easier because we have to get the motion before we strengthen. But let's say we only have a small range. We can still strengthen in that small range. And we're not talking with weights and doing a bunch of heavy stuff. It's just an activation more than it is true strength training. And, would, and then would just like we would if we're trying to get you back on the field, because um, it's all about progressive overload. You have to progressively overload the tissues. And when we talk about professional athletes, whether they're basketball players or football players, at some point, they're going to have to move them plus another person. But if you can't move you, there's no way you can move you plus somebody else. Agreed. For, for me, some of the, the thoughts in, in using BFR was more in the rehab component and what you're talking about, getting atrophy, you know, four to seven hours after being immobilized. For me, you know, not obviously we, we have some thoughts into doing BFR to make a better PRP, right, or a more activated PRP. But what about, you know, if that guy's not – I did a patellar tendon – He's got immobilized. He's in a hinge knee brace. Is that the guy that needs to be doing BFR pretty much right away to try and keep as much muscle mass as possible? And what are your thoughts on, on that? So with the with blood flow restriction immediately after, uh, like within the first day or two, I don't do it because you do get that rush right after you take the cuff off and because you're going to get some of that swelling in the fluid. But we can do it on other extremities. That doesn't right. mean you can do – like if you have – uh, let's say a knee, knee OA on the left side doesn't mean you can't do right knee or bilateral upper extremity. However, the upper extremity is not going to get the same systemic effect as the lower extremity. And gotcha. so that's, that's where we'll say, okay, you know, we have, we have our kid with the UCL, feel free to get after it on the lower half. Don't overuse your arm. You may need a hinge brace uh, at the elbow just to make sure you're not overexerting yourself because we call it the cell phone sign. We talk about this guys put their, you know, they're on their cell phone. They have to set it down because it's so tough. Well, I don't want them exerting quite that much because you still can get an effect from the occlusion and the, you know, what we talked about. So one of our things in the pilot study is looking at how long you maintain those elevated levels of lactate, uh, CD 34 positives, which are our stem cells, platelets and leukocytes you get an initial bump after about 10 minutes and then it returns to normal by minute 40 to 50 and then at 60 it's exactly the same so there's a little bump but that's only one bout if you're looking at people who are highly trained they typically have higher serum counts of these things thus it takes more of a an effort to get them to get a bloom from a lactic standpoint and we found we haven't, this is our next study is we're saying, okay, now instead of just doing one bout with exercise, let's do multiple and uh, like four to six weeks and see now, do we get a, an elevation that's significant that sustains for a period of time? And, you know, the, the average Joe in public out in the public is not using BFR regularly and they're not as active as they like to think that they are. And just like me. <laughs> and so, you know, there, when we look at these highly trained athletes who can come back much faster because it's their job to be strong and get better, it's a little bit different than, you know, hey, we have this 55-year-old guy who plays tennis twice a week, and, you know, he's, he's going to have to he, – is he going to get the same effect? Well, no, he's not going to get the same effect. However, it's not detrimental, and it's something that, hey, let's get this systemic response building up and getting going so we can start that healing process. So we will do BFR on all the areas around it. And then we'll start typically by about a week to week and a half out. 
if they had a surgery, we'll usually wait until the sutures are removed. Uh, that's kind of our rule. I don't, Johnny, you can probably shed some light on this uh, doing stuff after surgery because there are, we do a lot of uh, PRPs with our ACL reconstructions. And so we'll do that quite a bit. And so we don't, I don't know what timeline is best to introduce BFR after you've had orthobiologic or surgery, but there it's certainly, from my standpoint is if the skin's healed and it's closed up, I feel pretty good about applying BFR. Uh, and then also, since that's a little bit longer than what we do for just a traditional PRP, uh, I'm, I'm safe on that end too. Is that, is that, hopefully that answers your question. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, then let's talk about things that have more of a signal, um, potentially. So like bone marrow aspirators or, you know, our stem stuff. So, so what's different about that than PRP and what is it? So, uh, bone marrow aspirate, that, that's just, uh, you know, we, we get your marrow from your bone, and yeah, I like the posterior superior iliac crest. You know, that's supposed to be a higher concentration of bone marrow. Um, you know, the thing that's coming out of the bone marrow is is you know immature cells. You know, it has both hemopoietic and you know, progenitor cells as well. Uh, and lipoaspirate, you know, is I think the thing with lipoaspirate also has mesenchymal cells, but I think it has a better colony. So lipoaspirate is from the fat. From the fat, yeah, right. yeah, and you know, you know. You know, everybody's got fat. Even if they've got 6% body fat, you can get some fat from the inner thigh still. Um, and, and it's okay to harvest that. Wasn't there an FDA issue at one time? Yeah, uh, with some of the lipoaspirate, uh, you know, because, you know, they're trying to make stromobascular fraction, which is more the minimal manipulation of tissue where they, you know, filtered it, shook it up, filtered it, enzyme degradation, and then spun it, and then uh, a lengthy process. So that that's not regulated by the FDA or allowed by the FDA, I should say. Um, but, but the bone marrow aspirate, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a different, different cell type. Um, you know, Albert, you, you, you might have more insight on that as far as, you know, the cell markers and whatnot that's in the bone marrow aspirate. But, well, then uh, if y'all are going for stem cell, you know, that's the catch term. Well, yeah. I got a stem injection. What, what is that for in y'all's mind? We can't say stem cells. We're Proge not. We're not doing stem cells. Progenitor cells. Yeah, right? progenitor so, cells or mesenchymal cells. Or, and why can't you say stem cells? Because they're not true stem cells. You know, unless you're young. Right. Unless you're young, or you get it from your cord, or you know, you get it from a donor, you know, you know, which I don't want to go down that road at all. Um, but but you know, you know, they're, they're not stem cells that they're immature cells that we inject into your cartilage and it grows cartilage. It's not an immature cell that I get from your bone marrow from your fat. I inject into your rotator cuff tendon and it turns into a tendon. That that's what the concept people are getting in, out of the general public saying that oh, I got a stem cell injection. Right. Uh, and then there's other companies are are, are marketing, you know. You know, stem cell injections that that are coming from amniotic fluid uh, or amniotic tissue or cord blood or, or you know whatnot. You know, in my opinion, uh, you know, I'll let Albert also comment on this. Uh, you know, he may have a different concept um, or he may agree. I don't know, but in my opinion, the process it takes to get those cells from the donated tissue to where you're sterilizing it to where you're you know you know radiating it to get rid of all the potential transmissible diseases and, and, the, and the HLA antigens that cross cross reaction and then preserving it structurally. I think the cells may be there, but functionally they're not doing anything because they're, they're not viable. Yeah. You know, and, and, and now on the lab in the Petri dish, yeah, you can, you can do all this stuff and oh yeah, it's just culture. It's growing, it's doing stuff. But in the human body, we can't take that and, you know, from, from those other placental, you know, amniotic type uh, uh, tissue, and say stem cells for two things. Number one, I don't think they're viable. I think the cell structure is there, 
but they're not doing that. The other stuff, the, the collagen, yeah, the collagen I think has you know use and function, but I, you can't call it a stem cell. Uh, and again, you know, in our body, when we take our own uh, immature cells and inject them in different areas, they're not causing a change or a growth. It's not going to grow a new tendon in your body. I think it'll help heal it better. I think it'll help scar better. I think it'll be a cell stimulating for the pericytes, which come in from the from the uh, vascular cell wall to you know cause the healing. Again, is it healing with scar tissue? Is it healing with your actual you know you know is, is it healing with scar tissue? Is it healing with tendon tissue? Or you know, like Albert said, uh, a better scar tissue. You don't know unless you get biopsies on that. You know, and, and I don't know if there's any good studies out there that's showing that yet. But you know, in my opinion, I cannot tell people I'm giving them a stem cell injection because I'm not. You know, and then the cells that they're. I used to think that. I don't know why. Back in 2011, 2012, I thought maybe that that that's what was happening. But you know, uh, you know, the more I researched, more I read up on, you know, the more the data's out there. Uh, in my opinion, we're not taking immature cells. I'm not taking an immature bone marrow cell or a fat cell, putting it in your UCL ligament and say that, oh, I'm going to grow you a ligament. That's not, I don't think that's what's happening. What's your, Alberto, when you hear the term stem cell, give us your thoughts and what are you doing from that perspective? Yeah, I, I, I agree that, you know, several years ago, that was the thought was that, okay, we would get these stem cells, we would re-inject them, and those cells would in turn differentiate into the tissue that we wanted. Because in the lab, uh, we can grab those cells and stimulate them and make them a tendon or cartilage. So they are capable of doing it, but it, it doesn't seem like that's what's actually happening when we re-inject them. Uh, bone marrow is similar to PRP in terms that it has many of the same growth factors. They just seem to be at higher levels. It also contains mesenchymal hematopoietic stem cells. Um, and that word is kind of used a little bit loosely. So a true stem cell, so if I'm a stem cell, right, I, and I, and I want to become a cartilage cell, then what happens is that I, a piece of me differentiates and becomes a cartilage cell. But I still maintain my stem property or I'm still the same stem cell. I just gave off a cell that becomes something else. And that is not what is really happening with these mesenchymal stem cells. And that's why Arnold Kaplan has kind of gone back on his theory. He's the guy who coined them back, I think it was, I want to say 91 or so, somewhere around there. And more recently, he's now calling them medicinal signaling cells because he still believes in, this, in, the, in the mechanism in terms of them going in there and creating a signaling cascade and kind of quarterbacking the healing response. But again, not necessarily differentiating into other tissues. Uh, the other thing that bone marrow has is uh, interleukin receptor antagonist protein, IRAP, which in, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis, a lot of the inflammatory or the painful responses seem to be mediated by interleukin. So this, um, this uh, receptor antagonist that just happens to be in bone marrow uh, is something that we think will have a positive effects in joints. And it's essentially when you go to Germany and look at like orthokine, you know, how Kobe Bryant went over there and all these athletes were going over there. What they were getting was essentially IRAP uh, because in Europe, you can actually manipulate peripheral blood. You can pass it through these beads and essentially extract IRAP from it. Uh, and we can't do that in the States, but it just so happens that it's already present in bone marrow. So um, it, it's kind of funny how that ended up working out. Uh, but essentially, it's it's the same growth factors in PRP higher concentrations with the mesenchymal progenitor cells or, or signaling cells plus IRAP 
Um, and that's really what you get. And I agree. I, I don't necessarily use a stem cell. I, I just say it's a bone marrow concentrate injection. Um, with the uh, placental-derived tissues, I, I couldn't agree more. Our study that we published in AJSM in March, essentially we took unprocessed you know, amniotic fluid that w- was donated by uh, UC Davis, and then we took three companies uh, you know, that had amniotic, and these were amniotic fluid products, and we took bone marrow, which we know we can grow these mesenchymal cells or these whatever you want to call them, signaling cells. We know how to grow them. They have certain markers that we can test for, and they're plastic adherent. So we use the same processes, and we try to grow all of the three products out, and none of the, the commercial products grew any cells, right? Uh, and again, I think it goes to your product. When we looked at them under the microscope, there were uh, non-viable cells and maybe some viable cells, but none of them exhibited mesenchymal-type properties. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the, the cryopreservation and, and what happens to them. And I would say that we also ran ELISAs for growth factors, and they all tested positive for multiple growth factors. So I think there's a role for these, these, um, you know, these placental-derived products, especially in people who are very, let's say they have multiple comorbidities, they're diabetics, they're on COPD, they're on steroid medications, they're on O2 you probably don't want to use their own platelets or bone marrow, right? I mean, it's just not going to be healthy. So I think that's where these allograft tissues can serve purposes. But what we also found in the study is that the unprocessed amniotic fluid had much higher quantities of growth factors in the ELISA. So even still, not only are the cells being killed off uh, through in the cryopreservation, it seems that whatever they're doing, those growth factor levels are going down. So I think there's, they're very promising, but we need to find a better way to harvest the good stuff from the placental tissues. Hey, Albert, I can't wait until we're allowed to use exosomes. What do you think about the future of those? Yeah, it, it may be that, you know, the, the thought process that is that exosomes are the ways that these mesenchymal signaling cells communicate to other tissues, right? So what we're talking about quarterbacking or, or managing the, the healing response uh, these cells have to communicate with the other cells and tell them what to do. So they release these little exosomes that have, you know, messenger RNA and different types of uh, communicating signals that cascade down what to happen. So it may be that you don't need the mesenchymal cells. If you can just get the exosomes and put them in there, it may do the same thing. But uh, I think from a clinical perspective, we're, we're still far from having good clinical data there. Uh, but it, it's certainly promising for sure. Tyler, are you guys seeing work with progenitor cells or we'll just call them stem cells just for yeah this classic term yeah but what are you guys doing in that at andrews we are uh we're doing a little bit with the shoulder uh rotator cuff and labrum but more of it is coming uh with the knees we're doing bmax we're doing it in conjunction with surgery uh, we're also doing it just as a standalone we're we the protocol is a little bit similar um, and then there's a few differences, but oftentimes it, it's something that be, because the, the harvesting process is a little bit tougher, we're, we're waiting just a little bit longer to see them, um, unless they're already under the knife for a different procedure. So if it's an ACL with, and then they're doing a BMAC with it, there's no time, there's no change in the timetable when they come in. However, if it's just isolated BMAC, then they'll, they'll usually wait a day or two. Hey, Tyler, oh, yeah. uh, over over there, uh, you know, I, I know Dr. Ann's pretty good. 
how are y'all doing with uh, you know doing harvesting the uh, mesenchymal cells in you know, through an IV just an IV blood draw after you you doing what the pharmacologically mobilized stem cells or are you talking the the ones through like the vascular yeah you give them you last and you their bone marrow kind of upregulate and you so let, let's step back so lupagen is a cancer drug right uh, it's not a cancer drug it, it, it's it's a drug that's given to you to you know one of the downsides of chemotherapy is your cell counts drop. So the nupogen increases your cell count. Okay, using cancer care. Right? Yeah, it's using cancer care usually. So um, the thought is you can give nupogen and you'll shed or bloom out mesenchymals, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, Just to go back. So give this cancer. So I'll, I'll say it's, cancer assisting drug to make your blood more full of stem. Yeah, right. they also do it for for bone. You know, people that are doing bone marrow transplants. Yeah, they also give them the nepogen prior to harvest. So you give them that, Tyler, and then y'all would do an IV and draw the blood. Are, are y'all doing that yet, or, or we we are? I don't want to get too far into it just because we're <laughs> nepogen is is not approved for this use yet by the FDA, and so we're still under FDA supervision. But um, what's up? So it's off label. So it's yeah, off-label. so I mean, right right now what we are doing it. Um, and like, if we look at a BMAC and I don't, I, maybe you guys oh, can shed some on this term around. People might not know it. BMAC, exactly. Oh, yeah. Bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Okay. So yep. BMAC, it's basically pulling people's bone marrow and it's full of these progenitor cells, right? Okay. Yep. And we, and we almost use them exclusively from the iliac crest when, yep. we, when we get BMAC. But, uh, I don't know what the magic number of cells is, but you get what, somewhere between 10 and 20,000, uh, progenitor cells from your from your BMAC harvest from the hip. Whereas if we do a pharmacological mobilization, meaning like drug mobilized, and then we harvest it through a process called apheresis, um, and we we go in through the uh, through the femoral vein and they it takes you know two to four hours, you can get somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 cells of the CD34 positives, those particular type of cells that we're looking for. Um, and then we would give them 18 injections over the course of a two-year period. Uh, now, again, this is all in a study. Uh, we haven't published it. We're working with a group out of Malaysia that, that's headed by Dr. K. Young Saw uh, at KLSMC, which is Kuala Lumpur Sports Medicine Center. And there's a few other testing sites around the country and, and world that are doing this. Uh, and we're one of the sites that's a one of the sites for the multi uh, multi what is it multi-site randomized control trial we're one of those locations um so there's a few other places doing it but and then and then conversely we also have a vasper system which is the vasper is like a new step um if you're not familiar with what it is it's like a recumbent stepper that has the arms pumping back and forth and that has it has it has a cir- cold circulating i guess system that you wear uh, and it's on your back slash on your on your bottom and so it's like this ice it's sitting on essentially sitting on a game ready without the compression and it's around you and then it's got four limbs so bilateral lower extremity bilateral upper extremities uh bfr however i don't know i don't actually know what percentage occlusion um we're getting versus limb occlusion but it's, it's not very much it's nowhere near actual the actual 80 percent for the lower extremity and 50 for the upper uh and then you exercise with it so you're exercising which we know mobilizes these stem cells you're using cryotherapy which we know has a slight mobilization of stem cells and then you're using bfr which we know mobilizes stem cells and we've harvested from that the uptick 
in stem cells from the VASPR is not greater or not more efficient, either from a cost standpoint and then a time, than just doing a traditional BMAC. So we, we still just go in and harvest from the iliac crest. So the VASPR study does show an uptick, but you know, you're limited to the people that can do a VASPR that have four good limbs and that can have that kind of time. Uh, also, there's an insurance component. So, you know, it depends on your insurance. Is that, is that going to pay the bills? And, you know, hey, are we going to get physical therapy before, after, and, and all that kind of stuff? Because it's billed typically under physical therapy uh, because it's, you know, therapy to exercise. Then, but going back to the, the stem cells that are mobilized via Nupagen, we they're doing the, 18 injections, uh, you, you get one a week at week at the end at day seven, and then you get four more over the next four weeks, and then you do it at uh, six, 12, 18, and 24 months out. That's the and study protocol? That's the study protocol. Uh, and so you're, I guess, you know, 17 to 18 right around in there for injections. Um, and when I say one, it's, a, it's one a week for three weeks. So, so you're getting at six months, uh, at six months and zero days, you're getting one injection at six months and seven days, you're getting another six months and 14 days, you're getting another. So there's your three injections. And then you're getting that series at 12, 18 and 24. Uh, we don't know. And then we're doing this with patients with NeoA and they're, they have had a surgery. Um, it's a, it's a microfracture procedure esque, um, with the drill and, it we don't know when the maturation standpoint is like when does this cartilage come back when is it healthy to play on so we're, we're still trying to investigate where that's at we're in year three of of the study from our standpoint okay so well, I'll, go ahead man. i'll just show you the pictures uh because we'll, we started using bfr that was not in the original protocol but we've added that to these people because there's a modified weight bearing progression and we're seeing almost no quad deficits with the people as they get, you know, one, two years out. Um, so because we we're doing it's the initial protocol. If you have a microfracture on a weight bearing surface, you get 10 kilograms to start with, and then you increase 10 kg per week until you reach your body weight. So if you're a hundred kg person, you're going to have to wait 10 weeks. Uh, if you're 80, you only have to wait eight, but we can, the beauty of where, BFR comes in is we can hit them with that as soon as the sutures comes out, come out and we haven't changed anything from this because we, it requires a lower load. So we're not violating any weight bearing precautions. Yeah. And, and maintaining the quad or getting and maintaining, yeah. and maintaining quad hamstring. And because ultimately like with, with cartilaginous issues, oftentimes short of having some type of either autoimmune disease or, you know, insidious onset defect that ocd of of for whatever reason you typically some of these things are because someone is moving poorly they have a deviation in their squat their knee has a dynamic valgus meaning it moves inward and rotates some of these things where you see acl injuries but they've done it repeatedly and so it's worn that cartilage down almost like if you have a car with four tires and you have but you have one tire pointed off to the side it's going to wear down the tread. You're going to be able to get from point A to point B, but eventually that tread is going to wear down and that cartilage is, it functions in a very similar manner. And so if you don't correct the underlying movement deficiency, then having any type of injectable is also 
going to kind of be negated because you still have the exact same problem. You're wearing down the same thing. Uh, I've turned down many patients for an orthobiologic because of that issue. You know, they have a biomechanical issue that's causing, you know, recurrent bursitis or, you know, you know tendinopathy. And, you know, I've, I've had people come from different parts of the country, you know, drive 120 miles and they come back dejected because I'm like, I, you know, let's fix this problem first for you. And unfortunately, that, you know, when we talk about how people are abusing clinics or abusing these orthobiologics, you know, uh, you know, there are people that would inject them just, just to inject them without underlying, you know, understand the underlying mechanism is what's going on. You got to fix that mechanism. We had a, a defensive back from the league, uh, you know, come in about a couple months ago because he had orthobiologics done in his, in his rotator cuff and his bursa and his joint. And uh, uh, he got some relief, but then, you know, things flared back up. And I came to me, you think he was going to get a PRP injection that business. I looked at him, he had, you know, scapula winging and, you know, you know, you know uh, subacromial impediment because of the winging. And, you know, on the whole time, you see this big old subacromial bursa uh, that, that, that's, you know, just bursitis there. And, you know, I, you know, I do a little lidocaine in there and, you know, whatever bothered him, he was able to do without any pain. I was like, you know, that's where your problem is. I don't, you know, I, I don't see a need for a PRP and a bursa. No rehab. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did a cortisone injection so he could, you know, tolerate rehab better. And did it on rehab, you know, maybe some kinesio tape to fix it wing in the scaffold when he's not rehabbing and you know but but you know so some of these clinics out here uh, you know throughout the country they're just popping up left and right mm-hmm. saying they're a regenerative clinic or you know uh, and they're offering stem cell therapy and give a lot of false hope you know saying oh we'll regrow your cartilage your knee you got bone on bone arthritis we'll inject you and you you'll you'll you'll, you'll, you'll you'll grow cartilage back and god you know we, we, we got to get away from that we got to educate people more on, on what's really going on and um, you know, that, that breaks my heart. That, that's why I'm still in this game because I feel, you know, I have something to offer, doing it right, doing it the right way. Um, and if you, people like Albert as well, who's doing the right thing, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you know, people are going into it for the wrong reasons, just to mint money because it's cash only right now. And, you know, we just have to educate the population on, on what's, what to expect, what is actually happening. And, you know, these podcasts right here, I, th- I think will help get the word out. You know, just because it's getting abused. There's a lot of abuse. So, right, as of now, the two main things you're going to hear is PRP and STEM. STEM Right? Is that pretty much orthobiologics? And then STEM, to wrap it up, primarily bone marrow, BMAC, is the kind of gold standard at this time. And and lipoaspirate as well. And lipoaspirate. Okay. I haven't seen that as much. But, um... And then when you're saying the cord bloods, the stuff is cryo-frozen, um, maybe not so much, maybe some some growth factors, but people that are spending tons of money going out there getting, getting stem cells. Getting stem cells. Uh, Albert, have you heard this term ghost cells? For, for, for I, have, I have not heard that, no. That, 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 that's, somebody described that to me as what the actual stem cells are in the amniotic products. They're ghost cells. You know, they're... They're, they're structurally there. It's just a, a, little, a little a little haze of, of a stem cell, but just like a ghost, you can see it, but it's transparent. It's not doing not anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so we call them ghost cells, you know. So, um, but but yes. Yeah, so, so in these products, you know, I, I, you know, you can't call them. You should. You can't call them stem cells. And there are some people that are actually still calling them stem cells, and uh, they're not viable stem cells when it gets you know into that in that yeah. into that state. It's, um, and then beyond that, then anything else in the orthobiologics world that you guys do or that people should know about that's that's also being used. Um, 
I think one thing that is not done in the U.S., but um, it's done outside is where you actually get bone marrow or lipoaspirate and you actually culture expand the cells. Uh, so, you know, one of the drawbacks to bone marrow is that there are cells in there, but they're a low population. I think they're 0.01% of, of the total cells. So what you can do outside of the U.S. is grab those cells, culture them in a lab, so now you get, you know, Tyler, I think you mentioned 10,000 or whatever the number is, but you can get them to hundreds of thousands or millions of cells and then re-inject that back in. And, and, and uh, re-inject them you know, like a series. Instead of going to the bone marrow every time, you got the culture cell and you can go back right. in. Uh, you know, yeah. there, there's a company down in Florida, I want to you know, give out the name, but, you know, they're, they're actually trying to do that. You know, harvest it here, go to Mexico, go to the islands, culture it, and then, uh, you know, re-inject it. Um and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how we, we're so regulated here. Uh, you know, the, the, the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, is actually cracking down on clinics that are advertising in the U.S., that have shops set up in the U.S., that are recruiting patients to the U.S. clinic to go overseas to get their get, get their right. blue culture. You know, and, and even that's becoming, you know, a crackdown on as well. Um, but, uh, yeah. Even though it makes theoretical sense that more would be better, there's really no clinical data that that supports that uh, in terms of the numbers. I mean, maybe um, there's the Hernigu study, the rotator cuff repair that showed that higher quantity of cells had a better outcome, but uh, not to the level. And plus, we don't really know how they're culture expanding those cells and how that's going to affect people down the line. Um, so, Thing is, is a bad thing. Also, you, you can have too many, uh, you know, right? You know that, that cause you know uh, uh, inhib inhibition actually. You know, so, and so then, or what if you stimulate them, grow them too much, and then you can get a tumor? You know, what I mean, I know there's there's stuff in Asia they've done that where they've tried to stimulate them and re-inject them, and yeah. that's where bad outcomes have happened. Yeah. Too much of any good thing can be a bad thing. Yeah. Yep. I was gonna I was gonna ask you guys. Um, it on any type of outcomes related to neural issues and orthobiologics and or with with BFR because um, I know one of the things that we're starting to see or I'm not starting to but we've had a few cases where some people have come to us um, guy from the league he you know had a had a neural issue where the the nerve wasn't quite reaching that muscle at the level it needed to and he had some atrophy in his anterior delt and he's you know he's asking me he's like hey you know would stem cells work so i need to do more bfr and i was like you know i don't know you know i i need to i need to pick some people's brains and find out if if you know these orthobiologics are effective on neural issues and i know some people have talked about even using um at some of the universities i've talked to they've talked about using a, a orthobiologics in concussion rehab i don't know where you'd inject it um yeah. But <laughs> I just just you know, wanted to throw that out there and see what you guys think. Uh, to, to me, I, th I think you know, as far as nerves, uh, you know, in theory, I think it may help if, you know, you know, if it's minimal damage. You know, when it comes to concussion, God knows, man. If, you know, how's it going to cross your blood-brain barrier unless you use thermovascular fraction or they injected it intrathecally to, to do it? I don't know. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. You know, uh, as far as nerves, like just say if you got a foot drop from a dislocated knee, you got a peroneal nerve injury or uh, neuropraxy from that, you know, if, if you inject around there, hydro dissection around nerve, if there's scar tissue uh, around a nerve that's causing, you know, uh, traction injuries, uh, I think we can hydro dissect it, you know, we could do a leukopore PRP there, maybe, you know, uh, 
But again, there's not enough data there. Uh, Albert, what are you doing? Are you seeing anything or? I think there's some basic science data that that uh, shows that certain you know biologics can actually help with the healing or regeneration of nerves. But that's all you know in the lab, in the in you know looking at it under a microscope. From a clinical perspective, there's not a ton of data. The problem I think with things like PRP or bone marrow into nerves is that uh, they may be a little too much or too caustic, you know. And I think for for me, I do some spine for like epidural injections, right? Where you're essentially trying to bathe that nerve that's coming out of the foramen, it's stressed out, people are getting pain that's going down the leg, right? That's the quote unquote sciatica, which is more than that. But so I think that's where, you know, something like a leukocyte poor PRP may be of benefit. I think leukocyte rich may be too much. And there's something actually called platelet lysate, which is where you essentially grab PRP, you freeze it, and then you thaw it out, you freeze it, you thaw it out, and then you push it through a sterile filter. And what you're doing there is essentially extracting the growth factors from the platelets, but you're not getting the actual platelets because the problem would be is if, if you put PRP, let's say, around the nerve, it may be too caustic to it. You probably don't want to really form a clot in the epidural space, even though with a blood patch, that's kind of what you're doing. So I think what you're, by removing the potential offenders, but still getting the healing effect from the growth factors, uh, play that lysate, it might be a good option for nerves. And I think that's also where amniotic, uh, where where those tissues may be of benefit. If you can get a, a particle-free, ultra-filtered, just growth factor amniotic fluid, that may be, I've done that where I've injected it into the epidural space and had decent results. Uh, I still think it needs to get studied clinically. It's not, we're, it's definitely not ready for prime time. Uh, but I think those were, from a nerve perspective, that's where my thinking is going. Yeah, and with VFR, there's really nothing um, other than there's some thought that, that VEGF, especially the growth factor, is neuroprotective. And so there is some stroke stuff going on right now with VFR for a remote ischemic preconditioning. Can it systemically do something from a neuroprotective effect, but, but not really anything on this peripheral stuff right now? Yeah, we had, we had a guy with an ACL reconstruction with a uh, drop foot and he had a posterior lateral corner. And, and you know, we're... We, we ended up using BFR on him just to help with the quad in any way that we could. But, you know, I was just wondering what you guys thought with BFR. Probably, you know, down and you're stuck in that fibrosis with those kind of traumatic injuries. And so yeah. I just don't think we're getting through that. So let me yeah. go into, um, since we are a BFR podcast, the thoughts right now with BFR are pre-orthobiologic. Um, what we've kind of seen early is some acute work where it's, it's one, one bout and you can see a rise in, in the CD34s, which are basically the progenitor cells or the stem cells. Um, the, I agree with you, Tyler, and, and I think most of my colleagues would agree, probably multiple bouts, so more of a chronic dosing is going to bloom it out more. And, and so that's even Jacob Nilsson's work with it. You know, in three weeks, they were doing it daily. Um, you know, the, the satellite cells of the muscle just, just really went, went haywire and, and really came out. So if you have the opportunity to do it chronically for, for several treatments, it's probably good. And, and there's always the plus side that if they're actually able to do it on their injured limb, maybe they're going to get a little bit of muscle from it as well, which won't hurt if it's something like a knee away or, or, or a tendon issue. Um, and then what we're wondering next is when to start it post injection if, if it's worth trying um, not only to 
restore what you talked about, Tyler, and what we talked about is, you know, you can probably get some strength and hypertrophy back in that early protected phase where it's very low load. So you, you slowly introduce it even maybe in the active range of motion. You know, we've seen some, some stuff come out that if you use very low load, if you're able to get at least a higher limb occlusion pressure, you're getting similar effects as lifting heavy. But then are these other kind of growth factors helping the whole body healing process along the way? So, you know, we've seen that 80% limb occlusion pressure, we downregulated myostatin, which is part of this whole teaching of beta superfamily, which is involved with fibrosis. So if you're doing that, are you slowing the fibrosis cascade down? And, and is that a good thing with an orthobiologic? And then um, if you keep pushing extra progenitor cells, so you're doing BFR and that occlusion on the limb actually does get some of those CD34s to come out. Is that helping what the docs are doing from their injections? Because that's our goal. You guys inject and we want to support it um, by getting the limb back, but also if we can keep pushing growth factors and suppressing fibrosis. Because yeah. um, that, that's what we truly want is, is regeneration. The goal of orthobiologics and what the goal is the way we kind of do rehab nowadays is we want true regeneration. So I don't have a fibrotic muscle or a fibrotic tendon. It would be great if we could get to the point that we see true change. So that's, that's the overall thoughts we have right now. And luckily, we have smart guys like you that are going to help us with these studies um, and, and guide the world and take over the world. And we'll just send them down to Omar's Mexico clinic to spin out. <laughs> <laughs> so any, any thoughts there? And, and we're going long, so we'll probably wrap it up. i got to go pack still for AOSSM tonight. Um, yeah. You know, I, go ahead. Oh, go, no, go ahead, Alberto. Well, I think the the challenge for us has been in, in trying to get a study going is, okay, what what exactly – so our thought process, and, and we've talked about the study, and I actually met with Adam over in London, and we talked a little bit about it. And we said, okay, so uh, my thought was, okay, we're going we're gonna to draw some blood, check for growth factors, go through a BFR protocol, and then recheck the blood. And then we're going to check certain you know growth factors – and then the, the challenge was, okay, let's say we show that we elevate these growth factors. Well, we're still, I think, really trying to figure out which ones are the good ones, which ones are the ones that we want elevated. Yeah. And th something else that we thought about maybe adding to it is since we are going to check for PRP and we feel like monocytes are the good leukocyte, uh, is checking for actually not only growth factor change, but are we going to see an increase in monocytes in the PRP and that, I think, would be a better marker because I think we can all agree that monocytes are, are good, right? Yeah. Um, and then in the and I'm really also interested in afterwards because maybe because I, I am more conservative with my rehab protocols in getting BFR done while these, these guys are being immobilized during a boot. And, and like you said, we still want to give them some load, right? So the tendon is signal that, that it needs to heal. Um, I think that's where BFR for me is really going to come in key. Uh, and one question I had for you guys is what are your thoughts? You know, we see the athletes, like we said, are easy, right? They're healthy, they're active, all their biomolecules are, are high already. You know, are we going to see a bigger delta on the more sedentary, the 55 and over uh, population? I do a lot of PRP on those patients too. Will they be, I don't want to say better candidates for BFR, but the ones we really want to do because since they're never really active, getting BFR 
with low load will give them a bigger delta in terms of the jump in growth factors in monocytes. So that's a question I have more for you guys. I, th I think so, and, and we're seeing that. Um, they seem to be bigger responders, um, you know, just because, it, you know, a big pro athlete who's got a lot of muscle already, it's hard to, to give them much more muscle um, sometimes. But, you know, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis that came from a um, group in Germany looking at 50 and over and all the studies that looked at BFR um, with them. And they had really big effect sizes for, for strength, um, you know, two, like two to three type effect sizes. So in, in what we've seen in the literature, they respond better. So I agree. And, and we're, we're just looking more and more from a safety profile. And it seems really safe in these populations. Actually, you're down in Miami. I'll be down there in a couple of weeks. We've got the heart failure study um, going on down there with BFR. Um, and Interesting. Yeah, I feel very, very comfortable if it's done right and, and under control conditions that, that that's a safe population. So I, I think so. And, and that's the group I would like to see it help the most. Yeah, and that's one thing you know, we talked about, how you got that bigger jump in, in, in older you know, people. You know, I think the body can only produce so much, whether it's growth factors or whatnot. It doesn't yeah. matter how you get it. Eventually, I think I think it get tapped out. So that one thing with the BFR, I think, especially when I do my you know uh, with my rehab protocol post injection, is that you know you only have so much you know so so you know eventually you're gonna run out, you're gonna max out, you're gonna cap out, and eventually you know uh, you're gonna have a peak and it's gonna kind of dwindle down as far as response to the BFR. But I, I could be wrong, but I don't know uh, you know after a certain amount of time period, are you gonna tap out? You know, are, are you gonna tap out your reserves and and is it going to be as effective, you know, if you do it, you know, three times a week for a year versus doing three times a week for three months, let your body replenish, and then, you know, take a three-month break and then go back to do it, you know, uh, two to three times a week for another three months. You know, that, that's what we need to look at as well if you haven't, you know, if there's no paper on that yet. Um, yeah, I agree. For us, our athletes, the, it depends on the athlete. Like our football players are going to get petered out a little bit quicker just because the muscle fiber type. Um, and so they don't have the reserves that say some of our tennis players have who spend, you know, hours on hours running, whereas football players, you know, you go hard for three, five seconds and then you take a break. But yeah, I mean, you're going to have to do a lot more to get them to get that bloom versus somebody who's 50, who, you know, they're the most activity that they've done is pick up their 10 year old, or I guess it's a little old to be picking up a kid, but pick up their five year old. I don't have kids. So bear with me there, but you're picking up your kid and that's the most activity you've done or you're running around your backyard playing soccer with them. So those people are going to have a little bit bloom, a little bit bigger bloom earlier. And then whereas our athletes, like you're going to have to have that little bit more chronic use of BFR uh, because you're not going to get that same single bout bloom. And, and because they already have an elevated level of everything prior to doing it. So we we're seeing, you know, big early gains with, with the people who are a little bit older, a little bit less active compared to our athletes, the athletes, you know, you got to do it for a couple of weeks. You got to stay consistent. You got to stay on them with it. Uh, the younger, the, the other people, the older people who are less active, you know, you're going to see that, you know, some good results in the first week or two with the cell swelling and things of that nature. I agree. Well, cool, man. That's good. You guys. Yeah. It was fun. That was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks. That, that was good. And um, I'll, I'll put y'all's y'all's names and, and profiles in, in the liner notes of the show. Um, I'll, I'll put Omar's cell phone on there so we can call him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you guys. And, and let's all link up here soon. All right. 
Sounds Absolutely. good. All right. Thanks, Johnny. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.